Our preacher this morning is a native of Pennsylvania. But after he was graduated from high school, he went south to our Duke University, where he was graduated with distinction. From there, he went north, nearer his home state of Pennsylvania, to Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where he received his Master of Divinity degree. From there, he went to Drew University, where he was graduated with his PhD with distinction. He pastored Methodist churches for more than 20 years and was also a district superintendent. He then decided he would be called to spend the rest of his life with academia, and he went back south to Duke, his alma mater. From Duke, he went to Wesley Theological Seminary, and from there to Candler School of Theology at our Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. My alma mater, Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University, realized what an outstanding talent he was and asked him to come and be our dean. Once again, he served with distinction for 14 years, doing all the important work of replacing retiring faculty members with the very best that he could find anywhere. He is an author, his most recent book, When the Church Woke. In a few days, he and his wife will celebrate their 54th wedding anniversary. They have two sons. They have five grandchildren. While he was dean of Perkins School of Theology at SMU, the United Methodist Church worldwide elected him to their judicial council. Again, he served with such distinction for the first four years that he was chosen to be their president for the next four years. Like the Supreme Court Justice, the head person of the court. We are so honored to have him here with us today. Please welcome the Reverend Dr. William B. Lawrence. The peace of the Lord be with you. May I invite you to receive and hear the word of the Lord in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks Some Bible verses seem very personal 
I don't mean the ones that comfort us pleasantly or the ones that inspire us prophetically. I mean the ones that refer to us by our identity, our ethnicity, our sexuality, or our age. Take the sentence in Genesis 12 at the end of our Old Testament lectionary text for today. It starts the saga of Abram. Before Abram fathers his first child, and before God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, he has an encounter with the Lord who calls him to go to an unseen place, to trust in an unclear promise, to rely on unknown prospects, and to accept unimaginable possibilities for his life. At that moment, Abram, for the first time, displayed the faith that made him a founding figure in three great religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. All of them remember that God said, go. And Abram faithfully went. And then the writer of Genesis adds to the text of this wonderful story the following sentence. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. End quote. That part seems just too personal. <laughs> no, I'm not 75 years old now. But I was until six months ago when I had my 76. <laughs> The verse makes me wonder what God is calling me to do at this stage in my life. The verse makes me wonder whether God still might be telling old people where to go. <laughs> this, the verse makes me wonder if young people might think that the Lord only calls generations older than theirs to do the work of heaven. Besides, I know what it means to be 75. It means my eight-year-old grandson can handle the TV remote faster than I can. It means I sometimes enter rooms and then forget why. It means upheaval in life is unwelcome. It means also that one has had so many days when hope failed, that one might be skeptical about any new promise that comes down the road. My ministry began, or my call to ministry began, in the days before the United Methodist Church began. The United Methodist Church has given me a full career. I've had the privilege of being appointed many places, but now it seems to be falling apart amid doubts disaffiliations, and declines. And it will fail if it appeals only to the people of Abram's age. I worry about the next generation. But the worries are more than personal, they're institutional. 
American Methodism is 260 years old. Boston Avenue United Methodist Church is 130 years old. Half of the life of Methodism in America is in this church. And the United Methodist Church as a denomination is 55 years old. We've been around a long time. Wesleyan theology and United Methodist doctrines teach us how to read Scripture, so we should be able to know if it really matters how many birthdays Abram had when God called him. His age is one of the many places in the Bible where numbers appear. But Scripture uses numbers in surprising ways. It says the Israelites went from being slaves in Egypt to wandering in a wilderness for 40 years. It says Jesus went from being baptized by John to go without food in a desert for 40 days. Yet the Bible's message is always theological, not chronological. Scripture speaks in signs and symbols of salvation. Its numbers are not clocks or calendars. They signify more. The number 40, for instance, serves a spiritual purpose. It signifies a long yet limited time. Jesus was alone in the desert for a long time, but just enough limited time to strengthen him for facing the temptations and troubles that lay ahead. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for a long time, but the limited time necessary so they could realize their responsibilities for the liberty of living in a world of freedom as a faithful community and not as slaves any longer. The Bible uses numbers not to deliver data, but to define divinity. That's the difference between reading what the Bible says and understanding what the Bible means. A lot of our Old Testament, for example, took shape under the cultural influence of Babylon, where the people of Israel were exiled for generations. There they compiled psalms, stories of kings, sermons of prophets who warned of a need to be faithful. They looked back to their home and realized their temple in Jerusalem lay in ruins. But they learned how to write and tell the story. And what they wrote in Babylon and shared with us has proved to be stronger than the stones that their enemies overturned. In Babylon, they not only learned how to write the word of the Lord, they also learned many things from the Babylonians, including how to count. The Babylonians' mathematical system was built on base 60. Believe it or not, we still use it. How many seconds in a minute? 60. How many minutes in an hour? 60. It's only when we cite portions of a second that we revert to the other mathematical system we use, the decimal system, in tenths and hundreds and more of nanoseconds. 
By the way, we didn't get those decimals from the Babylonians. We got them from the Chinese by way of the Arabs who gave it to us. The Bible bears the legacy of many cultures. It uses numbers not as statistics, but as signs of spiritual truth with theological messages. At an age when Abram was old enough to make his own choices, he chose faith in God's promises. At an age when Abram may have had doubts about the present, he made decisions driven by the future. At an age when he was settled, an unsettling hope intruded and opened up a new world for him. It doesn't matter if he was full of years. He was filled with faith. In truth, we have utterly no idea how old Abram was when the Lord called him. Just because the Bible says he was 75 doesn't mean what we mean when we count to 75. Just because the numbers are there, it simply means that he was old enough to decide whether to accept the promises of God, and he did. And that is the point of the lesson from Genesis 12. When hope intrudes, it can come to us at any age, during any situation, under any condition. What matters is welcoming God's promises and building our lives around the enlivening hope that God offers us. Anything else is a distraction, even if it does appear in the printed pages of the book we call the Bible. Yet that is a hard thing for the church to understand. We keep getting distracted by the things in Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians about 56 AD. He said, women should be silent in the church. He said, it is, quote English, disgraceful for women to speak in church. Well, we broke that law today. That verse has been distracting Christians for millennia. And some Christians still do not get it. The Methodist Church waited 1,900 years till 1956 to recognize that women should have the same clergy rights as men. Other churches have still not admitted that it's true. For too long, Christians took the cultural conventions of gender from first century Corinth to be the content of the Christian gospel, but that's a distraction. There was another apostle, came along later than Paul, who wrote in 1 Peter 2, 18, Slaves, obey your masters. And the author, the apostolic author of 1 Peter, goes on to say, Obey your masters, whether your masters are kind and gentle, or harsh and brutal. And so for hundreds of years in America, Christians took those words in Peter, 1 Peter, as divine authority to buy, demean, abuse, and mistreat other human beings as property. 
The words are in the Bible in 1 Peter. But they are not divine. They're distracting. Methodists at first used determined not to be distracted, refused to be distracted. In 1774, John Wesley wrote an essay called Thoughts Upon Slavery, in which he described the brutality and injustice of enslavement, in which he condemned the practices of the European traders who promoted wars between African nations and persuaded the victors to sell their prisoners as slaves for the labor market in America. Wesley deplored the injustice and the cruelty of enslavement in 1774. He said slavery in America was racist. And he asked the question, who can reconcile this treatment of the Negroes first and last with either mercy or justice? early leaders of American Methodism read Wesley's words and opposed enslavement as well as the slave trade. The General Conference delegates and the bishops in late 18th and early 19th century America adopted policies that said, if you're a slave owner, you can't be a Methodist. If you're a Methodist and a current member and you own slaves, you have to emancipate them or you can't stay a member. They decreed that preachers were to deliver sermons regularly against slavery. And they established a policy that said every member of the Methodist church should lobby their state legislators to end slavery. And then, after having made public commitments to the vision of justice and hope, for the ab abolition of slavery. And then, in the early 19th century, Methodism read passages in the Bible like 1 Peter and became distracted by those verses. At the 1836 General Conference, the delegates and bishops decided that the real adversaries of the gospel were those who wanted to abolish slavery. The bishops told the General Conference in 1836, the church can do nothing about slavery. Eight years later, 1844, the denomination that had twice divided over white supremacy divided again over slavery. And 15 years later, in 1859, the ailing Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina prepared a speech for delivery in the United States Senate in which he said, the Methodists have split over slavery, therefore the South can secede over slavery. We went from striving to make the world better in the early 19th century to making it worse. Of course, secession ended with the end of the Civil War but we Methodists stayed split for another 95 years, and when we finally reunited in 1939, we segregated the church by race. In 1939, we formed the Methodist Church by crafting a new constitution 
that separated black Methodists from white Methodists. We divided the church racially until the end of institutional segregation happened in 1968. But by then, we had used for so long the social systems of segregation that our congregational cultures could not break through the racial barriers that we had built. And our leaders did not push us to be a wholly inclusive community of faith. We never have resolved our divisions over race. But meanwhile, after 1968, we found some other Bible verses to distract us. And we started making divisions about sex. Only a handful of verses in the Bible refer to homosexuality. And those in Leviticus and Romans that do come from cultures and conditions in ancient eras and empires. Romans 1.27 condemns homosexuality. But Bible scholars know that these words are built on moral ideas of shame that were present in the Roman Empire in the first century. And that they were part of the sexual part of slavery and what was permissible for slave treatment in imperial Rome. And Leviticus 20.13 demands the death penalty for homosexual acts. Now, very few nations on earth have codified that into their laws. United Methodists certainly don't advocate the death penalty. We don't advocate killing anybody. But we let Leviticus and Romans distract us. We write church laws to keep some people from having access to God's grace. By practice, we say everyone is welcome at the Lord's altar. But by church law, we exclude them from those same altars if their purpose is, is to exchange vows of marriage. By policy, we include everyone in our pews. By law, we exclude some from our pulpits. It is strange how certain verses in the Bible distract us from the main message of the Bible. In my five decades of active United Methodist ministry, I served as pastors of churches in small towns and big cities. I served as a district superintendent over churches in rural areas and urban areas as a professor and administrator in church-related universities, I occupied opportunities for ministry in academic appointments. And never in all those 50 years, in all of those settings, in church and academy, never did I ever serve a place without LGBTQ plus persons in it. And in 130 years as Boston Avenue Church, neither have you. And yet, in our denomination today, distractions abound. Racial supremacy and gender exclusivity have distracted us. Sexual identity has distracted us. We've allowed ourselves to be driven by distractions rather than by the divine word of grace. We have misread Bible verses that divert us from the hope God has for us. We have divided the body of Christ to avoid being united as the body of Christ. Early in my ministry, somebody recommended that I should develop a healthy appreciation for the devil 
that I should develop a realistic respect for demonic powers. At first, I scoffed. But then I realized, recognized, that the first question a minister asks in our order of service of Christian baptism is, quote, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? It reminded me that in ministry it was important to notice that there are some spiritual forms of wickedness in the rules we write when we think we are wiser than God's grace. Think of the gospel lessons that are read through the Sundays of Lent. They tell stories of Jesus' encounters with some who are excluded by religious rules. He meets a Samaritan woman seeking water. He meets a scholar seeking truth. He meets a sightless man seeking vision. And the sisters of Lazarus seeking life after their brother's death. If we misread those stories, we will mistakenly think the Bible is a bunch of rules for excluding Samaritans, the sightless, and the sexually different we would even be so busy that we could keep out the living and miss the opportunity to raise the dead. We could grind the gospel to a halt if we did that. And it could have happened here. By the time Boston Avenue Methodist Church was in its bare beginnings, a trail of tears for half a hundred years, stretched almost a thousand miles from North Carolina to Oklahoma, piled with countless victims of violence based on the policies and politics of racial supremacy that made whites more important than Indians. By the time Boston Avenue Church was just beginning, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that racial segregation was constitutional, making it legal to put black students in separate schools, black citizens in segregated systems for registering the vote, for enrolling in college, for buying a home, for getting a mortgage, or for earning a living as a professional athlete. We had segregated systems. Boston Avenue Methodist Church was born in that era, it must have been a difficult time to imagine being called to pursue God's promises as a church that relied on hope. The way some Christians read the Bible distracted us from the grace of Jesus Christ. It took a lot when this church began to trust the promises of God and to resist the distracting forces. When Boston Avenue was barely 30 years old, the Ku Klux Klan had become a powerhouse politically in Oklahoma and Texas and other states. Klan views regarding white supremacy had infiltrated communities and congregations. In Wilmington, the largest city in North Carolina where I live, there had been a massacre of black people by white citizens. And then it happened here in the prosperous Greenwood neighborhood where individuals and their institutions were treated as trash to be destroyed. It took a lot of courage to 
tell the truth of what happened. It takes a lot of courage today to tell the truth of what happened. It takes a lot of trust in the promises of God to believe that the awful events in Wilmington, in Tulsa, and elsewhere can be overcome. But when hope intrudes, even the most destructive forces cannot prevail over God's mercy. So to this day, the people of Tulsa sift through the soil to honor the nameless dead who were murdered a century ago and to be certain that the truth continues to be told. Promises matter. God's promises matter more than anything else. And occasionally promises emerge in the most surprising places to give us hope. There have been some justices in recent years and are to this day. Some justices on the Supreme Court of the United States who scarcely see eye to eye on anything. Among the most extremely antithetical to one another in recent years have been Neil Gorsuch and the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But in the summer of 2020, those two were joined by three others in a landmark decision that brings justice to every Native American and clarity about a property matter that involves most of the city of Tulsa. In that decision, Justice Gorsuch wrote these words. On the far end of the trail of tears was a promise. That is, on the front end as well as on the far end of the Christian journey in belief and hope. At our beginning and all the way through to our ending is a promise. This congregation has lived closer to the divisive, distracting debates than most local churches in our denomination anywhere. Boston Avenue United Methodist Church has had to trust the promises of faith to overcome segregation, racial supremacy, and the sexual ambivalence of preachers and people who have great gifts for mission, but might have been told to keep those gifts in a closet somewhere because the church was going to exclude them from having a chance to fulfill the promise God gave. And yet after 130 years, the word of the Lord is still progressively heard and proclaimed by this congregation, in this community, across this conference, and throughout the United Methodist Connection. When hope intrudes, the injustices, oppressions, and exclusions written into the rules are overcome. After 130 years, that word still endures. When God calls us, it doesn't matter how old we are. It only matters how bold we are as believers who behave according to the promises of God. Boston Avenue United Methodist Church needs to know 
that this congregation has a lot of allies elsewhere in that work. Before the delegates to the 2019 General Conference decided by about this many votes to impose rigid rules for excluding all LGBTQ plus persons whom God might call to ministry, three-fourths of the United Methodist bishops voted to reject such exclusionary laws and to become an inclusive church. Last week, a report by the Lewis Center at Wesley Theological Seminary showed that despite all the din and disinformation by the advocates of disaffiliation, more than 90% of United Methodist congregations are not departing from the denomination. More than 90%. Today, most United Methodists, in short, refuse to be distracted by the unimportant things in the Bible. And amazing things happen when we trust the promises that unite us more than the prejudice that divides us. Abram lived by faith. Jesus offers us grace. There is no need to be distracted by some divisive label. No need to be distracted by how old or young someone is. What matters is how bold we are to let God's future intrude into our midst, to fulfill the promise by which we began, in which we believe, and through which we will triumph in the end, where God's promise abides eternally. Amen.